Welcome to Taneo Insights, a podcast that provides in-depth analysis on the issues that matter most to CEOs and their businesses. I'm your host, Kevin Kajawara, co-president of Taneo's political risk advisory business. Let's get started. Good day, everyone. Welcome and thank you for joining today's special edition of Taneo Insights. I'm Kevin Kajawara in New York City. As the world now knows, on Saturday morning, Hamas militants surprisingly stormed in Israel by land, sea, and air from Gaza, killing more Israelis in a single day since the 1948 founding of the country. In addition, some 100-plus civilian and military hostages have been taken into Gaza, and now Israel has declared war and is likely to take unprecedented action. Here today to discuss the actions to date, what to expect, and what the ramifications and international response is likely to be, I'm joined by two of my colleagues. Ambassador Dennis Ross is a senior advisor to our sister firm, West Exec Advisors, and a distinguished fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He has served in the Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and Clinton administrations, and for two years was special assistant to President Obama and National Security Council's senior director for the Central Region. He spent more than 12 years dedicated to shaping U.S. involvement in the Middle East peace process. And John Alterman, he's a senior advisor to Taneo and the director of the Middle East program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. He has served as a member of the policy planning staff at the U.S. State Department and as a special assistant to the Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me on, on short notice um, today. And maybe let's just start with kind of giving your, your current assessment. There's been a lot of news just again today, but your current assessment um, of where things stand and what you're expecting, and perhaps Dennis, I can start with you, what you're expecting to see in the coming days sort of militarily um, and, um, uh, and what we should be looking for. Well, I think the key is to understand that whatever the playbook has been in the past for Israel and confrontations and conflict with Hamas, that playbook is now out the window. Uh, what Hamas did on uh, on Saturday was a shock, created a shock in Israel, partly because of the nature of the intelligence surprise, partly because Israeli forces were really minimal down there in the south for reasons we can get into. But the shock in Israel exceeds the kind of shock we had on 9-11 here. Uh, the country is reeling. The, as I've just talked to somebody there in the, in the security establishment, the blood is boiling. Uh, there is a need to demonstrate that Hamas was not only wrong, but Hamas is going to be defeated. Uh, I think reoccupation of, of Gaza is not off the table as an option. Certainly the effort to decapitate Hamas uh, is going to be a strong one. Does that mean Israel will immediately go in on the ground? Not necessarily. They're not going to do this according to the way Hamas might think they will do it. But at some point, you're going to see major Israeli forces on the ground in Gaza. Uh, the scenes there will, will be awful. Uh, Hamas leadership is deep underground. As the Israelis have told Palestinians in Gaza to leave seven areas and, and designated where they should go to. Uh, easier said than done. The objective Israel is pursuing is likely to pursue in terms of decapitation, also easier said than done. This will get very messy. It'll, it's not going to go away. It'll be several weeks for sure. And there is the risk that Hezbollah will come in in the north. So Israel will be facing a, a two-front war. So we're looking at something that is, is going to go on for a while. Uh, it won't be easy necessarily to conclude it. Uh, but the fact is uh, we're going to see what is a 
a really a difficult, rough period of time. Uh, Israel itself, I think, is completely poised for this, uh, precisely because the nature of the losses have been so shocking, uh, and the sense that Israel, more than anything else, must reestablish its deterrence. This is not just about sending a message as it relates to Hamas. It's, a, it's basically a message to Iran and the whole region. Israel is not weak. Israel will not tolerate anything like this. And Israel's capacity to do something about it is there, and Israel's prepared to pay a price, uh, regardless of what it may take. So let me ask you a quick follow-up on, on that, because you, you, you say that it's going to be ugly and it's going to be bloody. Um, but you also say that perhaps the Israeli move into Gaza will not be exactly as, say, Hamas expected or was attempting to goad them into. So I'm wondering, I mean, obviously Hamas has got some pretty skilled, fanatical, kind of light infantry, uh, infantry military people. Um, but going into Gaza, which is, you know, better than most, is, is a highly densely populated area and kind of that sort of urban level of warfare Fallujah style, Hue City style, um, is incredibly difficult. So talk about how challenging that is. And maybe if you could comment as well on the on the challenge that is posed by the number of hostages that are currently in, in Gaza and how that impacts the room for maneuver of the uh, IDF. Look, I think the importance is very important as it relates to the hostages. I do think that probably related to the Hamas calculus. The way Israel has traditionally dealt with, with their citizens or their military people being held, we've seen in the past, they've traded more than a thousand prisoners for the release of Gilad Shalit. So Hamas felt by bringing in the hostages, and it turns out a large number of, of children under the age of 10, uh, grandmothers, including some Holocaust survivors, they clearly, I think, believe this would deter the Israelis from doing just what I've been describing. Uh, it is not going to deter the Israelis. Uh, and they, and I, suspect, I expect Hamas to start executing hostages as a way of trying to, again, affect the Israeli behavior. I don't see that happening. Uh, I do think you're quite right. As someone who, as a negotiator, I spent a lot of time in Gaza. Uh, and I can think of a lot of places one might want to have military forces, uh, Gaza City is not one of them. Uh, you have very narrow, uh, you know, you really, you, most streets are not wide and then you have all sorts of alleyways. Hamas has built tens of miles of tunnels uh, underground. Uh, all those tunnels are, are booby-trapped. So this is, a, this is a terrible fight that the Israelis will be going in to deal with, but they're not going to live with a situation where Hamas, there's a ceasefire, Hamas retools, rearms, and then prepares for the next round. So the cost is going to be high, it's going to be messy, it'll be difficult. For sure, the Israelis have rehearsed all sorts of urban warfare scenarios uh, in Gaza. Uh, when I say it won't be quite the way Hamas thinks, I expect you'll see a lot more commando units uh, carrying out different attacks in different places, Based on intelligence the Israelis pick up, they did seize a deputy commander of, of Hamas, no doubt for intelligence purposes. Uh, Hamas will try to adjust what it does, they'll move around underground. But the Israelis, I think, even though you're going to see continuing attacks from the air, there you'll probably see all sorts of commando strikes to begin uh, in advance of any larger conventional move. But Israel has, has built up 
over well over 100,000 forces opposite Gaza right now. So they have put themselves in a position where they're going to go in. How, when, precisely the, the way in which they do it, that remains to be seen. John, let me bring you into the conversation here um, because, you know, I think that let's put aside for a moment the, the scenario that Dennis brought up a moment ago about Hezbollah opening up um, another, uh, another front in the north. But just focusing on, on the Gaza situation uh, for the moment, you know, um, this is something you and I have been talking about over the course of the weekend quite a bit. I think, you know, obviously, as Dennis suggests, the managing the conflict, as, as, as Israel has been attempting to do for a very long time, is kind of now over. Um, but what do you, I mean, what's the end game or, or what, what do you think is the objective then now in, in Gaza? Because one of the big, I, I think, one of the things that has stayed Israeli hands for a long time uh, is not wanting to occupy this territory, right? Um, and also, um, you know, what might what might take the place of, of ruling in the in the region other than Hamas would be even worse. So, what what do you think Israel's objective is here then? I, I thought you were asking about Hamas's objective, and now we're talking about Israel's objective. They're different. Hamas, I think, was trying to force Israel to deal with it. I wonder if Hamas actually was too successful for its goals, that it's provoked so much of a reaction from Israel that it's actually going to make it harder to get something of the settlement than they were looking for. But there, there's a psychological piece that Hamas has already won that it's going to continue to win. Let me, let me just give it some context. The Egyptian military still celebrates the 1973 war, right? Uh, military Day is October 6th. There's 6th of October City, 10th of Ramadan City, all kinds of things for the Egyptians. Even though the Israelis reoccupied Sinai, pushed the Egyptians back over the Suez Canal and were 100 kilometers outside of Cairo, the fact they were able to surprise the Israelis so profoundly is something 50 years later the Egyptian military still holds dear. And it seems to me that part of this from a Hamas calculation and from an Israeli calculation is that the Palestinian national cause just had, in the minds of people who want to fight their way to a solution, just had the best day since 1948. And putting that genie back in the bottle as you deal with it, I think is going to be hard. Israel is going to have to find some way to find some solution which I think for Palestinians, either looks like utter defeat or looks like some sort of compromise win. It's going to be hard within the Israeli government, certainly the current ruling coalition, to allow something that for the Palestinians looks like a, a qualified win. And it seems to me that's one of the dangers they have is how do you get out of this battle now that you started it? I think Dennis is right. We're not for sort of in a week or two, what Israel is going to do, but certainly the near term, Israel is going to come in with profound force as Israel's been with profound force before. But the, to me, the real question is three weeks, four weeks, five weeks in, right. when the military operations are starting, what's the political horizon? I don't think there's much consensus at all in Israel what that might look like. So if I could pivot here for just a moment, Dennis, you know, we've seen 
the news that the United States is moving a carrier battle group into the um, into the region. I assume that uh, notwithstanding the sort of declining actual military utility of aircraft carriers, there's still no better sort of geopolitical show of force um, than than that type of hardware. But I'm just wondering, where does the U.S. stand in the situation where there are a number of U.S. hostages, American hostages, uh, being held here as well? And to your point, if Hamas starts killing them, um, can the U.S. be drawn into this? Or uh, is the relation, the military relationship between the U.S. and Israel such that, and with the Israeli competencies and their special forces and the like, um, that we are unlikely to, to get involved? I think it's highly unlikely we will be drawn directly into it, although the the decision to send a carrier battle group uh, to the Eastern Mediterranean is clearly designed to say America is going to back Israel. America, we've seen it in terms of what President Biden has said, what the Secretary of Defense has, has said as well. Uh, there are nine American citizens who were killed as part of what Hamas did. There are Americans who are among the, the hostages as well. It means the U.S. has an interest, it has a stake, uh, but it's unlikely to be doing anything directly militarily. Uh, it will certainly, I think, create space for Israel for a period of time. John's point about, you know, the longer it drags on, you can anticipate at a certain point, probably not in the too distant future, President Biden will have a conversation with Prime Minister Netanyahu, and he'll ask him the question, what is your end game? I understand you're fully justified. What is your end game? Uh, and I think Netanyahu is going to say something like, the end game is we, have, we decapitate Hamas, and it may be that we create a circumstance where we occupy for a while, but we are prepared to create, hand it over to some kind of UN trusteeship of Gaza. Uh, the notion of what I'm saying right now, I'm not sure the Israelis themselves have figured out. I'm not sure they've figured out, okay, we're going to decapitate them because we have to show. We have to, we have to deal with the very point that John was making. Psychologically, Hamas cannot emerge from this as a victor. It has to be seen as it, it took this horrendous operation and it paid the ultimate price for it. Uh, now, being able to turn that into a political outcome, again, it's easier said than done. I wouldn't be surprised that the, that the Israelis may not begin to be thinking about how do you create a circumstance where Hamas is no longer in power in Gaza? Israel is not going to be in a position where at the end of this, Hamas can again present this kind of a threat somewhere in the future. Now, the Palestinian Authority is not going to come into Gaza riding on the back of, a, of an Israeli tank. But it is possible that there could be discussions about some transitional arrangement where they would in time come in after there's been some sort of uh, external international presence that helps to govern there. And it's worth pointing out as well that, that Hamas is more popular in the West Bank than Mahmoud Abbas is. So it's not a foregone conclusion that there would be sympathy in the West Bank for extending the rule of the Palestinian Authority. In fact, there may be sympathy for Hamas, and you know, Israel could, could as, as Dennis rightly pointed out, Israel could be fighting a two-front war. Israel could be fighting a three-front war, especially if the instinct of people in the coalition is 
we have to really beat down any sense of violence, opposition, support in the West Bank, support vigilante actions from settlers. We've already seen an instinct from some ministers to do that. It, I think the worst case scenario for Israel is if it ends up in a three-front war and needing to deter in a permanent way three sets of adversaries with a very, very different, very different sets of capabilities, but all of which can really affect Israel and, and, and average Israelis' daily lives. Okay, so I want to I want to return to the American and the international response in a couple of minutes. But since you guys have both sort of brought this up in a sense, um, you know, Dennis, what there's been a lot that has been made and speculated on with regards to the role <laughs> of Iran, not only as a longtime patron of uh, of Hamas um, and sort of expert utilizer of non-state actors within the region. But there's been speculation about their direct involvement in this action. Um, and I guess my question is what your assessment is of that. Um, in a sense, does it doesn't matter. Um, but um, where do you think Iran um, is in all of this? And, um, you know, and, and then the ramifications or, or what the implications are then for the utilization that John's just been talking about of, say, Hezbollah and the, you know, second and potentially third front um, scenarios? Um, very good question. Look, I, I think that Iran has played a role, and not just as a kind of patron or sponsor. There were Hamas leaders that went to Tehran. There were meetings that, that uh, the Iranians helped to orchestrate a three-way in, uh, in Beirut uh, with Hezbollah, Hamas, and themselves. Uh, I think that Kani uh, of the Revolutionary Guard was there at one point. So I think that they, they certainly, I think they certainly played a part. Were they the key to doing this? I think they played a major role because I think they wanted to, for, to ensure there wasn't a Saudi-Israeli breakthrough uh, on the one hand. I think they're pushing very hard to have Hezbollah open the second front. Hezbollah may, although I'm not sure it's a given because Hezbollah is facing a reality where some of its own base are not enthusiastic about uh, being sucked into a war. But it's going to be, I think it's a close call. So, you know, there certainly have been some already mortars and missiles fired across the border. Uh, there was an effort at infiltration earlier today. Hezbollah said they had nothing to do with it. It probably was Hamas uh, in southern Lebanon. But they're there at the sufferance of Hezbollah. Uh, Hezbollah may try to have it both ways. may not be so easy to do that. In the end, Iran will want the will max will want the maximum number of fronts uh, facing Israel. They will certainly use whatever monies they can to try to foment more within the West Bank. The Lions Den and Nablus called for uh, an uprising in the West Bank. There was not a response to it. Uh, doesn't mean that 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 won't change. Uh, there is also the question of of the Israeli Arabs. There is, you know, I would say 5% of Israeli Arabs are quite radicalized. Uh, now, 5% may not sound like a lot, but that's about 50,000 people. So there are a lot of potentials here. So far, the focus is on Gaza. The potential for a second front with, with uh, Lebanon is quite real. Uh, if you end up with a real second front, Hezbollah has 150,000 rockets. So Israel would be facing probably 3,000 rockets a day from there, at least for a while. 
uh, Israel would, again, they'll be going in there. Just so you know, Israel has now mobilized 300,000 forces. 100,000 opposite Gaza, about 200,000 in the north. So they're, not, not 200,000 north, but at least another 100,000 in the north. They are positioned for a multi-front conflict. They have rehearsed these kinds of, of operations. Doesn't mean that anything is going to be simple for them, but I think no one should underestimate uh, their ability to, to conduct that. But also no one should underestimate that this is something that can be resolved very quickly. We're in for a very messy period. And, and I think when we look at a, a time frame of up to a month, that's not an exaggeration and shouldn't be thought of as an exaggeration. Yeah, yeah. I just simplify yeah, I was going to ask if you concur with that because, um, and, and also, you know, kind of begs also the question about how much agency Hezbollah and, and Hamas, for that matter, have vis-a-vis -vis being, you know, um, agents of, uh, of Iran. I don't think Hamas is an agent of Iran. It's certainly a client of Iran. Uh, I have a really hard time imagining that Iran have given explicit direction the way it was described in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. I was in touch with the Western ambassador in the Middle East today. We both agree that it's very hard to maintain operational security the way Hamas did against the United States and Israel, which have Hamas is a, a principal target of intelligence collection, that starting to talk about this in third countries uh, and, and talking about the Iranians with the sense that, you know, intelligence agencies have penetrated all these organizations. It strikes me that this either serves the interest of Iranians who want to show the Revolutionary Guard is actually active and has fingers everywhere. It could arguably serve the, the interests of Israelis who, who want to get the world focused against Iran. I just am not sure it serves uh, the interests of truth. Again, strategic support, sure. Emotional support, sure. But operational guidance, that strikes me as a lot. But here's where Iran does have operational guidance. The difference between Gaza and Lebanon is Gaza is controlled by the Egyptians on one hand and, on, and by the Israelis. The tunnels are hard. It's hard to get things into Gaza. It's really easy to get things into southern Lebanon. You can go overland from Syria, which has a very close relationship with Iran, with the Revolutionary Guard Corps. What Hamas has in terms of rockets, you can just fire things up and hope they hit something. Hezbollah has missiles, and you target them. And I think Hezbollah's ability to really damage sites in Israel is multiples, multiple of Hamas's ability to damage sites in Israel. And for Israeli, for the Israeli military, as that knows much better than I do, this has been an ongoing concern of at what point do you take out this Hezbollah capability? It's been building up years and years and years because at some point you get to a point where you can't take it out. It's too big. Whether we're at that point, I don't know, but but the, the missile and air defense problem from the north is multiples the difficulty of the air defense problem from the south. Can I just add, Just I want to pick up on one point. I definitely think Iran is a sponsor. The idea that there, I agree, the idea that they organize this? No. But did they bring Hezbollah and Hamas together? Have they worked with Hezbollah and, and, and Hamas? Have they encouraged Hamas to do more? For sure. For sure. The reality of this surprise means you couldn't have had that many 
know about it because then it would have been discovered. So there's no way I think that they dictated this. They're thrilled by it, but they didn't dictate it. And then, and when it comes to the question about agency of Hezbollah, Hezbollah is more a tool of Iran than Hamas is, yeah. for sure. But at the same, by the same token, Hezbollah will also have to make some judgment. Nasrallah will have to make some judgments about what will be the consequences for Hezbollah in Lebanon if they join this war and Israel goes all out, and they will because the 150,000 rockets that they have, not, not all of them can cover all of Israel, not all of them have big payload, but maybe 75,000 do. Of the 75,000, they probably have 1,000 now that have precision guidance. So that, that means the potential to saturate Israel's missile defense network uh, is, is quite high. And it, it, that, by definition, means Israel will conduct what they will call an all-domain war, meaning it'll be cyber. It'll be, you know, it will be electronic countermeasures. It'll be going in on the ground. It'll be from the air. Uh, the fact is, ultimately, Hezbollah probably doesn't want to face that. And the, the question you ask is a really important one, because I think frequently there's a sense that Nasrallah ultimately is a Lebanese, and that will determine what he does. We are going to be watching. This is a very interesting case, because given the mood of Shia, especially in Lebanon right now, not at all clear to me that this is going to be, there would be such a, a desirable move from Nasrallah's standpoint to actually go to war. I will watch to see if we see things heat up a little bit. Do, does Hezbollah launch rockets, but is everything sort of kept in the north? If it's kept in the north, they're signaling the Israelis, we have to do certain things, but we don't want this to turn into an all-out conflict. And because Israel's own interest is not to turn it into an all-out conflict because they want to focus on Gaza, you could see that, but obviously it's easy to say that. And it's also easy to miscalculate as well. Those kinds of signals, you know, it's not a science where everything is always read the right way. I might just go back to something you just said, though, because I don't want to. This is, this is a subject for a whole other call, but it, but it, but it begs the question. You know, um, Iran um, has, you know, has shown itself to be pretty masterful at inflaming things mobilizing, using these non-state um, actors and proxy actors, uh, enable, enabling them to cause a lot of, uh, of disruption, and yet then nobody wants to engage them directly, especially kinetically, because of all of the potential ramifications. And at the same time, of late, with the sort of reemergence of kind of, uh, of, of great power rivalry, they seem to be playing, say, the Russian and China game pretty well, all things, um, all things considered, and even, you know, engineered the, um, or, or were a party to this, uh, this trade of you, uh, American political prisoners or the freeing up of uh, money held in escrow in South Korea, all of this. I mean, is this, are we seeing sort of a triumph of Iranian grand strategy um, playing out here to a degree? Well, clearly they're, they're looking to, demonstrate that they have all sorts of leverage. Uh, it is ironic that on the outside, they look to be successful, and on the inside, they're increasingly failing. Uh, now, that may feed their interest in doing more on the outside. I don't think it helps their long-term stability uh, on the inside. They have, they have created 
proxies that you see very much in Iraq and, uh, and, and in Syria, and obviously in Lebanon. I don't put Hamas in the same category, but there's a convergence of strategic interests. They are heating things up, and obviously they think right now they stand aloof. They can, they can heat things up, things can look terrible, and no one's going to touch them. And right away, right now, Israel doesn't have an interest in doing it because the focus has to be much more on Gaza. Where things will be over time, I think, will depend. Israel will look for opportunities down the road that are doing payback against the Iranians, uh, for sure. So, John, the other piece that's important is Hamas A is operating on the cheap, but it's also giving this impression that it's highly competent. And Iran loves when people talk about the capabilities of the IRGC. Iran is plagued by infighting. One of the stories I heard about Iran's Saudi negotiations is the Iranian side was so disorganized, the Saudis threatened to call off the talks to have a peace agreement, which is what the Iranians wanted to do, because the Iranians are the gang that can't shoot straight. And one of the reasons that, that I'm a little skeptical of this Wall Street Journal saying the Iranians are behind it all is it seems to serve this, this narrative of supreme Iranian competence that everybody is, is being micromanaged and the Iranians are calling all the shots. When the reality of Iran, not just on their domestic economy, but the way they do diplomacy, the way they do intelligence, nobody trusts one another. Everybody's infighting. Everybody's looking for who's going to be the successor to the supreme leader. This is a, a group that is great, as you say, at, at sowing disorder, of, of making chaos. But in terms of actually doing things and adhering to a strategy that advance Iran's, advances Iran's national interests, they don't do that nearly as well as they'd like people to believe. So, John, let's pivot uh, quickly to the uh, to the domestic political scene in um, in Israel. Much has been made of the recent, um, you know, sort of uh, domestic political chaos, the protests, the issues over the judicial reform, et cetera, et cetera, as having potentially distracted them and so on. On the other hand, I also think that a lot of um, uh, a lot of those who attack Western democracies over history have so sort of shown that they have. Uh, underestimated um you know the willingness of uh, of democracies to come come together in a moment of chaos and and uh and we've seen that with people who have kind of stepped away from their military commitments because of the judicial chaos and now re-upping and they're and they're showing up uh um, as dennis suggests but what's the reckoning going to be in your view in um in israeli domestic politics here once the once the dust starts to settle well, I think the reckoning, as Dennis suggests. the reckoning is months away. Again, I think Hamas was so successful that it did unify Israelis. It did bring Israelis together. It did get Israelis, I think, to put aside a lot of the differences. I think where the reckoning is going to start to, to, to show itself is a question of what are your war aims? How do you decide when to stop? And can you get the coalition, the ruling coalition on board for the strategy to move this into the next phase. Part of this war is going to be fought on social media. Part of it's going to be fought through public diplomacy. There is, as there always is, every single time, increasing international pressure for Israel to, to stop fighting and to start negotiating. And it seems to me that it's at that point, not for the next month or so, but in the two, three, four-month period, you're going to have a combination of 
So what's the actual strategy? What's the political outcome you're looking for? And a real reckoning on the intelligence failure, the military failure, which seems to be really profound, and which people both in the Israeli opposition, but also people in Netanyahu's coalition are going to be extremely critical of. This was, this should have been the principal target and of, of intelligence collection, defensive issues, and they convinced themselves that the issue was protecting settlers on the West Bank and doing other things. And I think that the, the, the misapplication of attention uh, in two, three, four months' time is going to reach a crescendo. Dennis? Look, it's, it is interesting that um, if you go back to 1973, I mean, we literally were 50 years plus one day uh, where you had a similar strategic surprise with catastrophic results. This is even worse because you lost more in one day than you did during the entire Intifada and during during any single day during the 73 war. The Agarnock Commission was formed. The State Investigation Commission looked into what was the, the failings before 73. You will have a state commission again. Uh, and the focus will not be only on the intelligence and the military failures. It will also be on the political failures. Uh, it'll be hard to believe that there won't be a huge political set of consequences given what has happened here because it's unlike anything we've seen before. You never had these kinds of losses since 1948. So it'll be big. I do think we're likely to see a national unity government emerge soon, given the scope of what's going on. I think it's, I think that is increasingly likely. Uh, and, and that'll make it easier. That'll create an umbrella for the decisions that are made during the war. Uh, but it won't prevent the reckoning later on. And there will be a reckoning later on. But no one wants to do that reckoning now. There is a very strong coalescence. You have those who were calling the, the brothers in arms who were calling for the reservists not to report, not to report before because of the judicial reform or overhaul. They were among the first calling on everybody to go. It, it turns out that the number of reservists that are reporting exceeds any time that we've seen in the past when reservists were called up during the conflict. Again, the shock of this and the, the sheer horror of it, the, the view Hamas is being looked at literally as not being human beings, given what they've done. Uh, and that has created a coalescence. Political factors are, are not being are not an issue at all right now. That's why I say I suspect we will see a national unity government, a national emergency unity government pretty soon. You know, you've brought up the uh, 1973 Yom Kippur War a couple of times, um, and I I say this knowing we could do an entire miniseries on this and books have been written about it. So maybe if we could ask you to just be super succinct because, but you brought it up, you know, um, there are a lot of differences here though, right? In terms of, I mean, the surprise, obviously, but Sadat, the Egyptian president did this attack with the, you know, knowing that he had a bigger peace plan or a peace objective in, in and the other thing was, you know, is there, a, is there a sort of a Kissingerian figure in all of this as well, who sort of thinks, thinks multidimensionally about what can be redesigned and, and, and where we could get, make lemonade out of the proverbial lemons, so, so to speak? Well, you, you raise a really interesting point. Is there someone on our side who has a strategic view of this, not just how do we bring it to an end, but 
in the aftermath of this, how does one turn something that was so profoundly negative into potentially a positive? Kissinger from the beginning of the 73 war was thinking, okay, we now have a war that will allow us, if we end it the right way, to launch a diplomatic effort. Uh, this is really different. You had Sadat then. Now you're talking about Hamas, and we don't know what Hamas is going to look like at the end of this. I would say, as I said earlier, if the Israelis can succeed in an objective that relates at a minimum to destroying Hamas military infrastructure and decapitating Hamas, and potentially, therefore, creating something different uh, within Gaza, does that not create some kind of political opening? Uh, I, I would suggest that actually we should be thinking about what might be done in that event. I mean, my own thinking is, at a minimum, one might think about some kind of, of uh, even during the war, emphasizing that there has to be a complete disarmament uh, of Hamas, a mechanism that ensures that if there has been complete disarmament, a mechanism that ensures it can't be rearmed, a kind of Marshall Plan, which has never worked before, because as long as, as Hezbollah, I mean, sorry, as long as Hamas could basically destroy anything in a moment's notice, who was going to go ahead and invest? And you always had the sense that Hamas, at a certain time of its choosing, was going to launch this all over again. So if you can come up with something of that sort, you have a chance to really transform Gaza so that it can't be the kind of threat that it has been. And if you're doing that, then you can be, you can be taking a larger look at all right, what can be done on the Israeli-Palestinian front, not to, to end the conflict, but begin to put it on a different trajectory. That was going to be potentially the benefit of the breakthrough with the Saudis, because there were some Saudi conditions that were going to require not just life getting better, but some tangible moves that would demonstrate that two states were being kept alive as an option. So here again, thinking about how you can take advantage of a moment, as awful as the moment is, really is the task of diplomacy. So, John, you know, one of the big um, questions, and, and Dennis has just sort of alluded to it here, we're getting a lot, um, you know, as I said at the outset, a lot of businesses, multinationals, investors have been sort of operating um, as if the Middle East was on a kind of one-way road to stability in the last few years, um, as most evidenced by the Abraham Accords and the like. So one of the big questions that's out there is, you know, is this going to put a halt, slow down, or fully stop uh, the diplomatic initiatives between Israel and, and, and Saudi Arabia? Um, and are there any bigger ramifications for the, for the relations between Israel and those that they had already entered into the uh, Abraham Accords with? Um, any it's, thoughts already, it's, already put a, it's already put a halt to the talks with the Saudis. They announced that today. Uh, I think the Israelis have other things. They have their hands full right now. They're not looking at it. Um, I think a couple of things. One is that Hamas's argument is we will disprove the Israeli theory that you can just ignore Palestinian suffering and lead to a, a peaceful integrated region. And Hamas is, Hamas is saying with this action, we can disrupt that course. You can't do it without us. But as Dennis very rightly points out, it is possible to think forward to broader Arab involvement in Arab-Israeli peace, Palestinian-Israeli peace, the development of Gaza, it's possible to conceive that there will be a really instrumental Arab role in consolidating a peace, but it's going to require 
both the ability of somebody to ensure that the terms are being held are being upheld on the ground um, and also some trust on the Israeli side that this is not just going to be the Qataris and the Saudis rearming the Palestinians other round against Israel but again from a diplomatic perspective we certainly have potential seed for a potential role of Arab states on the landing of this conflict. Egypt has played a role negotiating uh, truces and ceasefires and those kinds of things in the past, but it seems to me possible to envision an Arab role in, in helping Israel think through a future, but Palestinians have to be willing to accept it. Israelis have to be willing to accept it. And I think, quite frankly, right now, there's not trust either side to accept it and not the trust on the Arab state side to get involved. But but in thinking about where do we want to be in six years, that's certainly something that people should start socializing today. So Dan, I might just add, I think, can I just add, I just one quick, what John said is exactly right. One of the things we, we need to be thinking about what the day after is going to look like. Now, there is no way at this point to get anybody in Israel to think about that. No way. And that's why even the point, they're not thinking of the Saudis right now. They're in a state of shock and they're focused on what they have to deal with. But there's going to come a point where this will end. And then we will have to think about the day after. The time to think about the day after, at least intellectually, and then I would say from a policy standpoint, is not waiting several months from now. It's thinking about it in advance so you're prepared and positioned to do something pretty quickly uh, in the aftermath. So I want to give you the last word here because um, I know, thank you guys for doing this on short notice, um, and, I, and I appreciate how much time you've indulged me with already. But I guess those who are thinking about the day after already or who have to already start thinking along those lines are corporate executives um, and, and investors in the region. And I'm wondering, you know, if writ large, do you think that they need to reassess some of the assumptions that they have been making uh, about the region in, in, in recent years? Or is it really gonna be dependent on all of these variables that you and John have been talking about over the course of this conversation? If it remains, you know, if, if, the, if the war remains let's call it narrowly focused for lack of a better word, um, then business can kind of continue as usual in the Gulf states and around other areas of the region, or um, it can go very badly, or it could become a big, much bigger question mark if the war really expands. I mean, I guess, where should people, how should people be thinking about it right now with regards to their investment, their personnel on the ground, you know, um, and, and, and the region as a market? Look, I would, I would say maintain your perspective. And what I mean by that is what was happening in the region wasn't a function of, of external forces. It was a function of you had leaders defining their interests a certain way. Those needs as it relates to climate change, water security, food security, health security, cybersecurity, none of those needs have disappeared. They may be more acute in the aftermath of what may be a very disruptive war for a period of time. And there could be a period after that, again, where you still have to adjust. But those needs haven't disappeared and they're gonna come back. So 
maintain the perspective, recognize you're going to go through what is going to be a difficult period. There could be some transition after that. But ultimately, these basic needs are still there. They're still going to have to be addressed. One of the realities of a lot of these, you know, especially the Gulf states, they're more sensitive to the issues of governance and the need to preserve governance. That's not going to disappear. So the longer term trajectory I'm still hopeful about, I would say if the, if the Israelis can, su can succeed in their war aims, the region looks one way. If it is much more messy at the end, then it's going to be a longer transition in the aftermath of it. But as I said, those needs don't disappear. Well, gentlemen, as you've both suggested, this is likely to be playing out over the weeks and months to, to come. We will continue to cover it. Uh, hopefully, we'll have both of you back on as we uh, get some more clarity on where things are going. Um, uh, this has been extremely helpful. So I want to thank Dennis Ross uh, and John Alterman for joining me today. Uh, if you have any questions on any of this, please don't hesitate to reach out to us at Teneo Insights at Teneo.com. Until next time, I'm Kevin Kajawara in New York. Have a great day. Thank you, gentlemen. So there you have it. I'm Kevin Kajawara. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Teneo Insights. If you have any questions about any of the topics we cover, please reach out to us at Teneo Insights at Teneo.com. See you next time.